That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Show Is All About You. I am your host, uh, J.D.K. Winnikin. Uh, thanks for uh, taking a week off, an unexpected week off with me uh, last week. Um, ran into my first bout with kidney stones. Nothing like starting off on a good note, right? It could be a, definitely a metaphor for life. And I'm really happy to be back this week, and I have a really exciting guest to introduce uh, to all of you today. And I'll get to her in just a second. Uh, it is Julia Cannell from Airway Science for Kids. And uh, Julia, just kind of lean into the mic and just say hello real quick. Hello. There we go. That's all you need to do for right now. Perfect. And we'll be back right. in just a second. All right. So thank you to all of you for joining me today. And let's go ahead and jump right in uh, to what's going on in the world in a segment that I'm calling, What in the World Should We Be Talking About This Week? Here we go. We want to see uh, Ukraine uh, remain a sovereign uh, country, a democratic country, able to protect its, uh, uh, its sovereign territory. Uh, we want to see Russia uh, uh, weakened uh, to the degree that it can't uh, do the kinds of things that uh, it has done uh, in, in invading Ukraine. So it has already lost a lot of military capability uh, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of its troops, quite frankly. And uh, we want to see them not have the capability to very quickly reproduce that capability. That, of course, was U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking to reporters uh, in Poland last week after he and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met with uh, Vladimir Zelensky in Kiev to talk about uh, what was happening in uh, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. And uh, it was kind of a comment uh, that heard around the world because it seemed to indicate that the United States is moving um, in a little bit of a new direction, not just a little bit, a big new direction, in terms of how it's viewing the Russia, uh, the Russia situation. In particular, it seems to suggest that the United States really believes that not only can Ukraine resist this invasion, but they can actually win. Uh, and it indicates, to me at least, a bit of a sea change in what the U.S. is going to be willing to do. Instead of just sending in light weapons to support an insurgency, it seems like they're going to be investing a lot more money and heavier weapons to help the Ukrainian military blunt the Russian invasion in the East. And there's a lot more to it than just Lloyd Austin's statements about it. Last week, of course, President Biden proposed a $33 billion aid package to uh, Ukraine militarily uh, to support uh, this effort. And it looks like uh, it's probably going to pass Congress. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was just visiting in Kiev last week. So that looks like it's going to be happening. Meanwhile, the new Russia offensive in the East with, that they thought was going to be the game changer is grinding on very, very slowly and, uh, and of course, the, the Russian military seems to be taking a book out of their behavior in Ukraine in the 1920s uh, and in World War II by stripping down everything they're getting within their possession and sending it back to Russia, whether that be grain or equipment, uh, you know, household appliances, that type of thing, uh, which all that is really doing is underscoring to Ukrainians even more 
why this literally is a life and death struggle. Meanwhile, in Russia, Putin's grip on the information of what's happening is strong, but there is a massive brain drain going on among young Russians who are the best and the brightest that that country has to offer. They are leaving the country in droves. And of course, the Russian military is still losing officers at an alarming rate. In fact, last week, the Russian military chief of staff was wounded in an attack in the eastern section of Ukraine in an attack that killed 20 other officers and a major general uh, was one of them. The military know-how and memory of how the Russian army works and all their expertise is literally getting killed in alarming numbers. One NATO general called it an unprecedented level of loss. And of course, it's who knows what this means. This new U.S. effort uh, is risk inherent in the U.S. pushing this a little bit further. Yes, there is. Biden has said resisting dictators is an important thing to do. uh, And he's right. But as far as knowing how this will turn out, we simply do not know. Uh, But certainly it does indicate a turning point. All right. Let's take a look at the second story of the day. Dans quelques jours, le second tour de l'élection présidentielle m'opposera à Emmanuel Macron pour choisir qui aura la lourde charge et l'immense honneur de présider notre République pendant les cinq prochaines années. Tous les cinq ans, ce grand rendez-vous démocratique ne constitue pas seulement l'occasion pour la nation. I'm not going to go ahead and translate that for you, but that is uh, Marine Le Pen, who uh, last week, uh, to a collective sigh of relief across most of Europe and across most of the world actually, lost the uh, French election for president to Emmanuel Macron, who won his second term, uh, second five-year term as France's president. Now, Macron was is not a popular guy. A lot of people seem to vote for him to keep Le Pen out. Le Pen, of course, a far-right candidate uh, who was really pushing on domestic issues in France to get elected. And she is a big fan of Vladimir Putin. She hasn't said too much about that in the last couple of months. But nevertheless, she lost. And the reason why it was such a huge sigh of relief last week is because European unity around what's happening in Ukraine is really vital to what is going to happen with Ukraine. And it was a reminder that that is simply not a given. Uh, France's neighbor, Germany, has been slowly resisting calls uh, from the rest of Europe and from the United States to wean themselves off of Russian energy dependence uh, and finally indicated a willingness last week to do that and announced they've reduced their natural gas reliance on Russia to 35% from roughly about 65%. And, uh, of course, the fear is is that for Europe to pull itself entirely off of Russia gas would start a recession. At the same time, Putin blocked uh, natural gas uh, distribution to Poland and to Bulgaria simply because he could. What it indicates is that for us in America, what is happening between European nations is of more importance for us to be paying attention to. Because European unity is not a given. It's just a reminder that Europe is not just for fun vacations and looking at really cool historical sites anymore. It's for really taking a look at the importance that they have in the here and now. And interestingly enough, something worth keeping an eye on, the, the tail is really wagging the dog. France and Germany are the big powers in Europe, but it's really those countries in the eastern part of Europe that have direct experience with being under Russian control. Poland, the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, uh, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, that are pushing hardest for hardline measures to support Ukraine against Russia. Uh, it's worth noting, I think those are the types of people to really that can really get us thinking about what freedom actually means and what do we do to protect it. The people who know what it's like not to have it might have something to teach us for those of us who've had it for a really long time. All right, so then let's take a look at our third story. No, for real, for real, Mr. President. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me here. You know, I was a little confused about why me 
but then I was told that you get your highest approval ratings when a biracial African guy is standing next to you, so... Uh, <laughs> So let me just say, uh, Joe, uh, I'm glad that I could uh, do my part. And uh, hopefully this will work. I'm not actually him. I just did the voice. That, of course, is Trevor Noah, comedian and host of the very popular The Daily Show, speaking at the White House Correspondents' uh, Dinner over the weekend. And uh, saying that, standing up on a dais uh, with President Biden literally two seats away from him. Uh, and it was the first time that this this famous event uh, in six years, actually had a sitting president uh, sitting there. Pre- the previous president didn't want to go uh, for reasons that will surprise nobody, no, no matter what size of, uh, side of the political aisle you're on. But it was really refreshing to have Trevor Noah there. It's the first time the event had been held in three years because of COVID. And it's worth watching in its entirety. But what stood out to me about it was how amazing it was that that a comedian could stand up in front of the most powerful people in Washington and the most famous people in uh, American and international media and make fun of the president of the United States to his face. Not because, you know, that's no commentary on Biden from my part, but the fact that he could do that, as he even said, and and face no repercussions from the state for it, was a rarely, really powerful thing. It also reminded me of the importance of a sense of humor. You know, for people who have a lot of importance in the world, uh, being reminded that they are just simply human uh, and that there are things that we can laugh about even in the midst of crisis is a wonderful thing. Uh, and I think Trevor Noah and others who know, specialize in making people uh, laugh and laugh at uh, everyday things and laugh at themselves are really presenting us uh, with a gift. And so uh, it helps me appreciate even more that, uh, that I live in a country where we can actually do that. All right. Now, as far as other things go, some, some good news that I wanted to share. Uh, Indian researchers, listen to this, have figured out a compound spray made up of natural bacteria and fungi that can be used to destroy agricultural waste and replenish the soil at the same time. In India, a lot of wheat stalks are burned uh, every harvest, and it, it's a major pollutant in the air. Indian scientists uh, some companies have figured out how to do that, where uh, essentially this, enzyme, this could be sprayed on these things and within days uh, could eat it up and replenish the soil with it. Meanwhile, a team of scientists in the U.S. and elsewhere have developed a different enzyme, that can break down the chemical components of plastics in a week, and in some cases, as soon as 24 hours under certain conditions. This could be used to spray on landfills to reduce them, to save energy on refuse disposal and recycling, to make plastics reusable faster, Uh, and this is something that could be a game changer, some say, in how we handle recycling. And then finally, researchers at the University of Michigan have developed a non-invasive sound technology that can be aimed at liver tumors. And when experimented on with rats, it kills cancer cells and spurs the immune system to prevent the further spread. They use it. It could destroy 15 to 75% of a liver tumor. And then in 80% of cases, the body was able to handle the rest of it and eliminate the tumor entirely. So it could be a huge breakthrough in treatment, not just for liver cancer, but for other forms of cancer could introduce non-invasive surgeries. All right. Now, funny news of the week. I don't know if you know this, but uh, last week, Queen Elizabeth II of England uh, was given for her 96th birthday her own Barbie doll, meaning it looks just like her. And it comes with a a formal gown and a blue sash and a tiara. And um, all I can say is uh, maybe don't buy that for your kids, not not just because it's expensive, because it is. But can you imagine what the dream house must look like for that Barbie? Like how big must that be, right? Is it 
You can jump on, Julia. You clearly want to say something. Because I don't really like Barbies, but, but this particular Barbie, you can't find it. You can't find it? No, because they bought them all out. Oh. So I'm quite disappointed to go to Mattel's website and find there was no Queen. Barbie. Well, then I guess, but I mean, but that's the thing. But it's the like dream what would house the, would be awesome. Would be big, and the dream jet would be even bigger, right? Um, okay, so Julia, since you're going to be on here, um, my favorite story of the week is uh, down in Brazil, a 100-year-old man named Walter Ortmann just entered the Guinness Book of World Records for the distinction of serving the most in his career with one company for the longest period of time. 84 years he has been with a textile distribution company down in Brazil, and he's worked for 84 years. What I want to know is, uh, Walter, what kind of retirement plan are they offering you? Because hopefully you're clearly... Uh, you love working there, all joking aside, uh, clearly love working there, but I just thought that was amazing. Um, so there's that. And then of course the world's oldest person, uh, 119 year old Kane Tanaka of Japan died last week, uh, born in 1903. Um, think of what she saw in her lifetime. Uh, the oldest person now in the world, according to Guinness is a French nun known as sister Andre, who is 118 years old. Okay. All right, finally, to bring us to our guest uh, for today, uh, Julia Cannell of Airway Science for Kids. Julia, I'm going to uh, tell you what's been going on in your hometown so of excited. Federal Way, Washington. Okay, so there's not much going on in Federal Way, Washington. Which is the, surprising. Well, well, the big news, according to the Federal, uh, Federal Way Mirror, the local newspaper last week, was that a new Dick's drive through burger place is coming in, and that's, that's a big deal up here in the Northwest. But I thought this story would be really good. On, on April 26th, a number of locals found a bunch of ducklings without their mother near a park uh, in Federal Way. The mother so- sounds like had been hit by a car, and so they were on their own. So the locals herded up these ducklings and got them to a fire station. And the fire station collected them all up, called animal control. And somehow, animal control came down and found an adoptive mother duck to take these ducklings, and as she put it, they quote-unquote waddled happily away. I don't know how you find an adoptive duck. There must be no interview process for that Maybe they put an ad in the paper. That's how I became a foster parent. Okay, well, whatever the case, the the story didn't say that. But nevertheless, and they had just saved a bunch of ducklings from a storm drain. Uh, And then later in the week, the same fire station found homes for five abandoned cats so apparently the firefighters in, uh, in Federal Way really know what they're doing when it comes to not just fighting fires, but uh, civil serving as far as pets go. And apparently we have a lot of unruly pets in Federal Way. Unruly ducks. Because ducks they're, are having a, they're everywhere. Ducks are having a hard time. All right. So that takes us through our news for the day. So uh, th- that is Julia Cannell, my guest for today from Federal Way, Washington, originally. Uh, now currently the executive director for Airway Science for Kids which is the sponsor of this show. And that is not the only reason why she's on. Thank you so much, Julia, for for sponsoring it. But also because she has a really compelling story to tell about Airway Science for Kids, but also where that fits in for her. And so she's going to be the guest today. So, So, Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you. And this show, from this point on, is all about you. Okay, so... Um, certainly animals. You're a big animal lover. I was going to say, can you me and some ducks? Because I really like the duck theme. Right <laughs> well, you have a lot of dogs and like, cats, and, and your mother is a is a semi-professional uh, animal rescuer. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, my favorite story about my mom is when she lived in Polson, Montana, population 2000, um, Gordon the dog catcher, if he found a stray cat, he had a key to my mom's house. 
And if mom wasn't home, he would just leave the cat in a cage in the bathroom and send her a text and say, hey, there's a cat in your bathroom. And <laughs> then she'd go find it at home. <laughs> we won't talk about the danger of giving a stranger your key, but yeah, that's mom. Well, right. You're right. Exactly. Well, mm-hmm. the, the, the focus is on the animals. Anything right? for the animals. Right. Anything for the animals. Okay. Well, everybody, Julia is, uh, is not just uh, the director of Airway Science for Kids. She's a lot more than that. Uh, and she's going to tell you a little bit about it as we go through the conversation here. Uh, she became a pilot as a teenager. Uh, thanks to her dad's uh, mentorship, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, she also uh, is a parent, uh, and she was a foster mom for over 100 kids in her life. I always make sure to mention that, which is an amazing thing, uh, and has had quite a storied career in life. You've worked in worked in retail for a lot of years, uh, worked in the museum world for a while, and have, uh, over the last handful of years, really kind of geared towards making airway science for kids not just a successful nonprofit, but a real game changer in uh, the aviation world. And I always tell everybody that that uh, she is such a person, dynamic on so many levels, that if she were Maverick, the pilot in Top Gun, uh, Goose would still be with us. <laughs> he would not be dead. So I think you have a T-shirt that says that. I do. You? I do, okay. in fact. Okay. So uh, what I'd like to talk about, Julia, today is, is really, first of all, about Airway Science for Kids. Tell us a little bit about uh, what the organization does and how it does it. Uh, but then we're really going to dig into the why you do this and why this really is, in some ways, the perfect coming together of all threads of your life um, for you to be in this position and guide this organization. So what do you want to say about airway science from the top here? I, I first want to say my daughter always says I have the strangest skill set in the world, and yet <laughs> I still manage to find jobs that it works for. Um, <laughs> airway science has been around for 30 years, and our goal is to introduce historically underserved youth. So whether that's BIPOC students those that identify as female, um, students from low-income homes, foster kids, and students with disabilities, to introduce them to the the variety of opportunities available in aerospace, but more important, to introduce them to something that might be their passion in life. Mm -hmm. We we talk about not just careers, but what do you want your life to be like? And so um, it started because Bob Strickland, who founded our organization, was a black man who was not allowed to fly. In the, when he joined the Air Force in the 70s um, because he was a black man. And he saw the power of aviation. So in 1992, when gangs were a huge issue, especially in Portland, he decided that he would take that power of aviation to keep kids out, literally out of gangs. And the most amazing thing about the program is two of our board members are graduates of it. Mm-hmm. And one of them has just become the first female uh, black female principal in the Park Rose School District in Oregon. And she will tell you that the only reason she didn't end up in a gang was because of this program. So we have a long history of being able to reach kids. We've been a part of the Oregon community for so long that um, it's pretty amazing to watch the graduates come back and talk about what they've done. Yeah, it is. It is phenomenal, and it's it's reaching into uh, into areas where, of course, the aviation industry has not really tapped into. Right, the aviation industry is, as you put it, exactly old rich white guys. <laughs> guys, for the most part, it's a very expensive industry to get into, to learn how to be a pilot, right, to go through the college education you need for other areas as well. And yet the aviation industry also is so widespread that it can bring in just about any other skill set underneath it. And that's part of what Ask is doing, too. Correct? Absolutely. Well, and I always say, you know, my favorite game is you name a career and I'll tell you where it fits into aerospace because it covers everything. It covers business. It covers fashion. It covers design, not to mention becoming an astronaut or a pilot or accounting or, or counting one of the yeah, marketing 
it's it all is in aerospace somewhere. And so what we try and do is let kids explore the different areas, what's available. There's so much new technology that we can't teach them the technology. I mean, I can teach them the latest thing on drones, and in two years it's going to be obsolete anyway. So what we do teach them is self-esteem, is emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. is understanding themselves, 20th, 21st century skills, being able to communicate, being able to work with others, being able to do all those things, and really respecting themselves and believing in themselves that they can do whatever it is they set their minds to. Part of our model is also that we don't just work with the kids. Um, We work with their families and we work with our community. We want it to be a community, um, quite honestly, because I'm a big white woman running an organization that focuses on serving BIPOC youth. I understand what I know and what I don't know. Mm -hmm. And so a a lot of the focus we have is on making sure that we are listening to the people we're trying to serve, the people that we're working with, and bringing them into all of our planning processes, into everything we do. It's fantastic. And I know just, you know, we're going to talk about this coming up. Um, that's a life experience you have. That isn't something you've just learned on the job. That's a life experience you've had. Okay. So let's dig into that when we come back from our first break uh, on this show is all about you. Uh, stick around, everybody, and come back and visit more with Julia Cannell of Airway Science for Kids. We'll be right back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I dot org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. I am JDK Winnikin here with Julia Cannell of Airway Science for Kids. Uh, not just an amazing organization, as you heard just before the break, uh, but behind it is is truly an amazing life, uh, a very unique life. You mentioned your unique skill set. Uh, well, it's, it comes from a really unique set of uh, experiences. And yet, I think experiences that in, in a larger sense, a lot of people will be able to connect to in terms of some of the things that have uh, that you've done and experienced and how you've turned this all into a sense of mission. So let's let's rewind a little bit, right? So you've been doing this for a while. You are an aviation nut. Completely. Completely. Yeah. Completely. Tell us how that started. My mom and dad were both raised in a small town in Oregon and got married straight out of high school. Um, mom put dad through college because he was going to be a teacher. When he was 22, uh, we had family friends in town. So dad went out to a local airport and I, I like to say got in the airplane, took a ride, got out and looked at my mom and said, now I'm going to do that. And, <laughs> and of course, my mom going, wait, we just finished the first one. And he did do that. He um, he started mowing vacant lots and continued to do that while he built his hours to buy his plane to, to do what he needed to do to get the training 
So when I was born, um, I know you asked me if I remember my first flight, and I, I actually don't because dad flew us home from the hospital. So we <laughs> lived, I was born in Portland, and we lived in Womack, which was an hour from the, the Hood River Airport, but that's where dad flew out of. And so when I was two, he was the teacher at a one-room schoolhouse in Womack, Oregon, which is now population 36. Um, he was the teacher, the school bus driver, the athletic coach. He did a little bit of everything. When dad would get off work, dad would drive the hour to the airport and, and build his flight time. And so he did that until he had uh, 250 hours, which is insane by today's standards. Today wow. you have to have 1,500. Right. 250 hours. Um, and he got hired by Northwest Airlines. And the first time he ever had ridden on a commercial <laughs> plane or a jet was to fly back to Minnesota for his interview. And this is in the 1960s? 1966. 1966. Yes. Okay. Just to put it in a time yes. frame. Right. Yes. Okay. So so we packed up and left and left Womack. Um, and my early childhood, I mean, I, I have my favorite picture is of, of dad and I out at the airport. And I was just sort of tag along with dad. So dad would, you know, I said he, he made his money mowing vacant lots. And and so he would have a contract with the state of Oregon to mow some lots. So he and I would get up on a Saturday morning when we were in Womack, put me in the car, we'd drive the hour, we'd get in our plane, we'd fly it over to the Aurora Airport, get in our little pickup that was there, and then just go off to whatever field he was mowing that day. So you would fly to the places that he would mow mm-hmm. and then fly back home. And most of them were around the Aurora area, which is where he grew up. So we okay. just kept a vehicle there. And so it was the longest commute in the world. I mean, seriously, <laughs> it's a lot of, but, but that was how my dad always treated me. I right. mean, I was a four-year-old kid that was running around collecting grasshoppers and rocks while he was mowing the lawn mm-hmm. and it just didn't even phase. Waiting you know. to fly back home. Right. Waiting to fly back home again. Mm. And so we just went everywhere. So you were always comfortable flying from the earliest age. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I know that you becoming a pilot, you getting into the cockpit was a major life changer in terms of maybe maybe not fully recognizing it at the time, but certainly in retrospect. How did you end up becoming a pilot? Again, tying it into your dad, who became, by the way, a longtime pilot yes. flying yes. 747s for Northwest around the world. Just yep. to tie that off, he started in a one-room schoolhouse and pretty soon was yeah. one of the most esteemed pilots for a major international airline. Absolutely. And he came home from every flight and would say, I can't believe they pay me to do this. Mm. He loved what he did. And we had planes. So if he wasn't flying for work, we were flying our small planes. Mm-hmm. We lived right by the airport. Um, and as a child, nobody believes this today, but as a child, I was, I'm, I'm quite tall. And I've always been quite tall. So I was a little awkward in junior high and high school, um, to say the least. And very much an introvert. Didn't want to play sports. Didn't want to do all the things that dad really wanted me to do. And so when he told me I needed to learn to fly, I, I tried crying, which didn't work. Um, I didn't didn't want to learn. I mean, I, I was an insecure 16-year-old girl. Are you kidding me? You're going to put me in an airplane and make me go fly that by myself? Mm. And it's probably the one argument that I lost with my dad that I'm so happy that I lost. Um, and I will never forget, I learned to fly in 1943 J5 Cub which has an 85 horsepower engine. So, you know, think about your lawnmower. It's just a little bit better than that. And it was one seat in front of the other. um, And the standard experience is you go take your flight lessons until your instructor feels like you're ready to solo and you're at the end of the runway. And one day he just taps you on the shoulder and says, let me out. And and I, I will never forget being in that plane and taking off and going, huh really don't get to have a question as to whether or not I can do this because I have to put the plane back down again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Taking off is optional. Landing is landing not. Is not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it really did. It, it absolutely changed my life. And I found an industry in a place where 
while I constantly changed the demographics of a room every time I walked in. I mean, anything in aviation, I was the only. I was the only woman in it for so many years. But I found a group of people that once they knew that I could fly, once they knew that I understood it, it was like family. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, literally a shift. Yeah. In, in Because like it did for your dad, opening up a, literally a whole new world yeah. of, of not just what he could visit and see where he could go, but of his own sense of his own capabilities. It sounds like the same thing happened to you in a very different way. So what once you did that, what changed for you? It was, school had always been tough for me. Um, I was diagnosed with dyslexia, but not until I went back to graduate school 10 years ago. And so a lot of things had been so challenging. And, you know, I always had those report cards that the teacher said, she's trying so hard, she's trying so hard. I got to aviation and I took ground school in high school. It was a high school course. The shop teacher taught it, by the way, um, who hmm. didn't know how to fly a plane. Um, but but it was that passion and everything I was learning was so interesting to me that mm. all of a sudden I realized it was it was just like home. And it was very much like it was for my dad. There's just something about aviation, something about the airplane, something about operating them, the entire thing that just I absolutely loved. Mm. What words that come to mind just based on watching you from here talk about this? A sense of wonder, mm. empowerment, maybe? Completely. Yeah. Possibility, mm-hmm. uh, curiosity about things. It sounds like it opened up a lot for you as a person of what you might be, be capable of doing, whether you were in a cockpit or not. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And this was, I mean, I was born in 1964. So I was still born in that generation where my high school counselor told me that I could be a secretary. And, and that that was just the expectation. And and it's funny because my dad didn't particularly like female pilots. Um, females weren't allowed to fly commercially until the late 70s, commercially mm-hmm. and in the military. Right. And, and dad didn't particularly approve of having to fly with a woman in the cockpit, except if it was me, because his daughter was different than all the other women in the world, <laughs> which is one of the greatest gifts he ever gave me, because in everything in my life, he just went, no, you can do this. You mm-hmm. know, I always say some people's parents throw them into the water to teach them to swim. My dad put me in a cockpit and went, okay, go at it. Right. And, and it really did, though. I found, I found my footing by flying. I found I found my place in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it didn't stop me from still being a slightly insecure, you know, 17, 18 year old. But it put me on a path where I knew where I fit. And wow, that certainly seems like something that in the work that Ask does, you're wanting other kids to experience. Absolutely. It was it was the act of one person. It was one family friend that said, hey, do you want to go take a ride? That changed my dad's life, that changed our life, man, I mean, and the opportunities that it opened up, and the things that we've been able to do. And I now have, um, I have seven siblings, and I have four brothers, and all of them at one point or another have been pilots or are currently pilots. So it, it's a genetic thing, partially, I think. <laughs> but it, it just, as a, as a female, it during that time, it empowered me to go and do things that otherwise nobody would have said I could do. Man, that's amazing. And and so to kind of take this even further, then. This inspired you when you got to college, right, to really want to pursue this as a career. So tell us a little, because that's not what ended up happening. No. Unlike your dad, no. nope. you didn't go into working for nope. an airline or anything like that. What shifted? So I, I, I tried several colleges before I really found one I liked. Um, I was on the seven-year plan for bachelor's degree, because mm-hmm. you know how that goes. Sure. I ended up in Ellensburg, Washington, and they had the only flight technology program this side of the Mississippi. And so um, I started studying there and I realized I would get great grades. 
and I was a great student because I was studying something that I loved so much. Mm-hmm. And over the between sixteen and nineteen twenty, when I started when I started at Central, um, aviation was the thing I kept going back to. You know, we always had the planes to fly. I always. It, it was what kept me out of trouble. It was what kept me from, you know, you can't go drink if you're going to fly the next morning. Right. You, you, there are just things that you look at life a little bit differently. But it was the one thing I kept going back to. So when I found out there was a college program that would me allow, allow me to do that, I loved it. So I went to Central. I joined the Air Force ROTC. Um, and again, this was not even a decade after women were first allowed mm-hmm. to fly in the military. And so in my detachment, we had, I believe, 23 people who received pilot slots to, to go become pilots. You know, when they finished college, they would go to flight school. Um, and, and 23 and 22 of them were male. And then there was me. Um, but the funniest thing was I was the only one that actually knew how to fly a plane. Out of all of them? Of, uh, of the 23 of us, I was the only one that had a pilot's license. I, uh, Interesting. And yet the, the colonel of the detachment who was uh, even less of a fan than my father was of females being able to fly things would do things like we'd have a we'd have a graduation to plan and he would come to me and go you need to plan this now i, I don't do kitchens and i, I don't do domestic very well so mm-hmm. asking me to plan a dinner party is really not a very good idea wow. at all. but it was a woman so i must know how to do it mm-hmm. yeah that's a resounding mm-hmm. uh, yeah so so you ended up not going the air I force didn't. route i didn't Why was um that? i have a vision problem ah. that um makes it so I can't track things. You know how when you go to the eye doctor and they put the little dots and they say, mm-hmm. tell us when they match? Mine doesn't work right. Gotcha. And so it's not something that, at the time, you couldn't even fly with glasses. So not corrected, it just... Okay. Yeah. So so the big aviation part of, of all this is is really clear in these various yeah. stories. And I know you have a million stories that I oh, wish yeah. we had time to tell about that. But then there's the kids <laughs> side, right, with this. Because you had a major pivot coming out of this. Yes. Right, and I already have teased everybody at the front end of the yes. show that you were a mother to one uh, one hundred mm-hmm. kids. Not all at once, I promise. Yeah, so, not all at not once. all at once. So coming out of college was when this shift happened. Tell us about the development with the kids part, because this is as much of an important part of the story as the flying is. So, so I finished up my degree, and I actually got a degree in a flight technology with a minor in airline management. Um, and I did my internship with Airborne Express, which is a company that doesn't exist anymore, but it was a, a flight uh, freighter company. And I'd gotten married when I was in college. And, you know, like all 23-year-olds do, you kind of think you can do anything. Mm. And so literally, one day, my husband said, hey, you know what? We could become foster parents. And I was like, that's great. What's a foster parent? I had no idea. I mean, I literally didn't know what one was. I'd never had that experience. Mm -hmm. And so he really wanted to. And I was like, okay, fine. Six months. We'll take one child for six months. My intention was to figure out something in the airline industry. And I honestly didn't plan to have kids at all. I finished my college internship and we were going through the process to get licensed to become foster parents for my one child for six months. And a week after I finished school, um, the state came out to to look at our house. They did their inspection. They licensed us and they called and they said, you know, you have a pretty big house. So you could actually take more kids. And I see that your stepmom is Asian and we have a family of Vietnamese children that need a home. I'm like, mm, wrong box of crayons because my kids weren't Chinese. She was mm-hmm. from Hong Kong. and But it didn't matter because at that point, the state was still doing a lot of, you know, matching colors. They were looking for they, just about anything. Right, right. Absolutely. So any way that they could. And so they said, you know, three kids, it'll be six weeks. 
And so literally I had this experience where it was the same day we'd gotten licensed. So all of a sudden now I'm calling family, friends and going, hey, does anyone have an extra bed? Does anyone have a, you know, clothes? Yeah, you've had no preparation time. None whatsoever. And a few hours later, the doorbell rings. And I, I've said before, I quite honestly knew that when I opened that door, I was going to become a mom, which was about as far-fetched as me planning major dinner parties because mm-hmm. just it didn't, I mean, it wasn't something I'd ever planned to do. And I opened that door and this adorable little six-year-old angel looks up at me and she's like, hi, is this where we're going to leave now? Can I, can I see my room? And I was like, oh, oh okay, sure. Um, it's been 32 years last January 18th. So that six weeks kind of stretched out a little bit. The state didn't mm-hmm. quite tell me the truth. Um, and so with those kids, it became, then there were two more. And then when those two left, there would be a few more. And for 15 years, we we took care of a lot of kids. And during that time, I went from being the slightly entitled white girl from Federal Washington, Land of the Ducks, to um, a woman who was raising her kids in the worst neighborhoods of Tacoma, Washington, during a time when, you know, the hilltop was popular news on 2020 because of gang problems and things mm-hmm. like that. But that's where my kids were from. Okay. And I wanted to keep them in that area. It also showed me the disparity between what is available for kids, um, depending on their zip code, mm-hmm. and and how much these kids didn't have. Mm-hmm. Foster children, less than 2% of them go on to college, let alone graduate from college. That's the lowest percentage of any group in the country. Yes. And, and so I became a passionate advocate for my kids because I had to. And there were so many of them and so many kids in need. So having that experience of seeing what they were up against, what their families were up against, really, it just never, it never left me. Mm-hmm. And uh, three of those kids, you, it was over 100 kids, I think yes. you fostered in your, in, and three of those kids you adopted. Yes, are still, yes. Yep. I'm going to attract meet at three o'clock today for that adorable little six-year-old that was standing at my door, her 11-year-old son who's running track. And uh, so I have I have the three that I adopted um, and I have four adorable grandkids now. Right. And and of course, a biological daughter and a biological. So so that side, I think, is a really hugely important part of this. Not just that you were a foster parent because you saw you got kids from every direction and every experience, but living in those living in areas that they were coming from, seeing what they were experiencing on a daily basis uh, clearly is a very powerful part of this story as well. And I also know that, um, you know, overcoming personal challenges, all yep. these things you talked about, going being a sensitive, shy, young young woman, learning about possibility, and then big U-turns into yep. foster parent. There's been a lot of, there's been a lot of back and forth, and you've tried out a lot of different stuff. I have, and I come from a family where my, I have my, my siblings um, from my, my parents' first marriages um, are all... They're like the, the guy that they'll be 84 years and my brother will still be working at Costco. I mean, I swear he's, <laughs> he's just, he's that person. And, and my older brother and my sister are both corporate America long-term mm-hmm. and then there's me. And uh, yeah, so I, <laughs> I, I like to try a lot of things and mm-hmm. not stay in one place for too long, apparently. Mm-hmm. So it really has been, um, my life became very, very guided by my kids. So instead of working in aviation when my kids were little, I, I worked retail because the hours worked. And for a single mom, I could juggle my hours so I could still have my kids and take care of my kids and be able to work. Mm-hmm. So so I did end up doing a little bit of everything. And then the next real change was um, when 
my youngest daughter, when Haley uh, went to college, I had always told myself that I would go back to school and and get my master's degree. Mm-hmm. And so I was working at the museum at that time and started that. And I remember in my first class reading that when I went to school in 85, 3% of commercial pilots were female. Mm-hmm. I, it was at this time, 2012, 6% of mm-hmm. commercial pilots are female. Mm-hmm. How does that even happen? How how are we that far behind in this industry? Mm-hmm. And how many females are missing out on this incredible opportunity mm-hmm. because they don't think they can do it? Right. In an industry that had expanded tenfold in the period oh, yeah. of time between those two points in time for you. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So it's and it's one of those things where numbers can be deceiving because on one hand you could say, well, that's double what it was. Right. But when the, when the industry is 10 times as big... It's not nearly as much. Yeah. And so, and it's still something that, that uh, particularly commercial aviation is still, is still working through, still struggling to. Um, and, and have you found that there's more interest in that part of what ASK is doing, Airway Science for Kids, is, is trying to get the industry's larger attention on this. Do you think it's happening? It is. It, it is. is. It's, um, it's taken some work and it's taken the fact that there's an absolute crisis for uh, both aircraft mechanics and pilots mm-hmm. in commercial airlines for the airlines to go, okay, wh- what are we missing here? Mm-hmm. And what they're missing is they're not starting early enough, but they're also not reading, reaching the right population. So mm-hmm. we work with people like the Experimental Aircraft Association that I have a group of volunteer pilots that will take our kids up for flights. So a few weeks ago, we took 17 black students, 12 of them female, up for their first flights in an airplane. Mm-hmm. And they all get off and they're like, wait, I, the pilots let them fly while they're up there. And suddenly this kid that was scared to get in this airplane gets off the plane and they're like, and now I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. Because it just, it's life changing. So finding ways to get them to have those experiences is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is a, you know, if there is, if there's a guaranteed growth industry anywhere, oh, yeah. it's That's aviation it. and aerospace. And so uh-huh. it's, it's, it's a, it's a series of things that ASS does that, all the things that you experienced in life, things that can inspire you, show you what you're about, show you what's possible, you are bringing a lot of that life experience now into this mission that the organization does. Absolutely. But giving kids, I, I, I say that my youngest daughter from a very young age had the attitude and the self-confidence that I had at about 40, but she had it at about 10. And being able to tell kids that it's okay if you're neurodivergent, it's okay if you you know, don't like school or you're, you know, you're dyslexic or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be who you are. Mm-hmm. And we meet them there. And then I want to make sure they understand emotional intelligence. I want to make mm-hmm. sure that they have the opportunity to experience these things. But I also want to make sure that we're doing the same thing for their families mm-hmm. so that the parents are brought in. So the parents are part of this process and part of what they can do because it is so amazing to be able to have that experience where somebody gets out of an airplane and looks at you and says, I'm doing this because of you. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, just to make sure we give people an opportunity to find out more about this, before we go into our second break, how can people find out more about Airway Science for Kids and what what it does and what it's doing? Visit our website, which is airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org. And we have our programs on there. We not only have programs in Portland and Hillsborough, Oregon, our goal is to expand our programs, but we also have a lot of resources online. So if there's somebody that they can't get to, that doesn't live in the Portland area, they will be able to go in and see what we have available and ask questions, engage with our instructors, and be able to do 
you know, a lot for their kids to be able to find opportunities. Awesome. Okay, so airside.org. Make sure you check that out, everybody. All right, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we will finish up with our guest, Julia Cannell, uh, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids, and yet so much more. Be back, everybody. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to This Show is All About You. This week, this show is all about Julia Cannell and Airway Science for Kids. She is my guest. Thanks, Julia, so much for sharing all of those things. Um, And there's so much. I I love how your life exemplifies what you're doing. Uh, It must feel amazing to be kind of in that zone where pretty much all areas of your life, you are applying the lessons of them and all the positives into this sense of mission. Yeah, it it really is. It will have events at the building, and I'll just look around and go, I, I, I can't believe we've managed to do this. And it's it's certainly not just me. I have an incredible team, and and I have a, a group of individuals that are from the community that we're serving in Portland that know the community that can go do outreach and go do those things. My primary purpose is I work with the industries. That's I speak that language, so I work with the industries as far as them supporting our programs, how we can help them you know, with, with their hiring crisis, with some of these things. And, and so it's, it, it is, I, I go home at night and I go, I can't believe they pay me to do this because it's like, fantastic. Just yeah. like your dad did mm-hmm. once upon a time. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And uh, the opportunity that that gives for kids down the line to be able to do that. And it's a reminder for me of, you know, whoever that person was that introduced your father and said, Hey, you want to go on a plane ride? Just that very simple thing led to this huge ripple effect that has spread out to everything we have talked about and that you continue to do. So let no one out there say to themselves, one little thing can't change thousands of lives because it literally has in this case. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well then let's, let's finish things up in these last few minutes with a little bit of, you know, speed round questions for things and just answer quickly, right on all this. All right. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. So um, what's a book that you've read that you think everybody should read? Little Prince. Little Prince. Little Prince. How come? Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, because he's a pilot. Um, it's it's an amazing book that talks a lot about what we lose as we grow from children to adults. So mm. go find out why it's not a hat. Mm-hmm. 
with an elephant in it. Um, and then you'll understand. But mm-hmm. it's it's an amazing book. And all of his books, um, Wind and Sand, Wind the, the Wind, the Sand, and the Stars is another one of his books. He just does an amazing job of of talking about aviation, of telling you what it was like, of the beauty of it. He's he's a national treasure in France. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's on their money. Yes, yeah. he's, he's uh, died in a P thirty eight crash. Right. Uh, right. During the forties, but just amazing. And the book, the book says a lot. Okay, what's a place you visited that you think everybody should see? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, Vietnam has a special place in my heart because I I went there for my son's wedding and was amazed at, at how beautiful the country was, how much there was, and and the people are just incredible. Mm-hmm. Watch out for the little moped things on the street. I mean, don't don't try and cross <laughs> the street. But other than that, it was an incredible place to visit. You know, that's awesome. Okay, what is a a movie that or a TV show that will stop your channel surfing oh, in its tracks? This is just such a anything with an airplane crash. Like, let's just throw that out there first. I <laughs> love anything with an airplane crash. Now, there's a good reason for it. You learn a lot from yes. airplane crashes. They fascinate me. So, air disasters, like. I could lose an entire month just watching the, Air Disasters. That TV show? But I also love a bad series of movies like Jurassic Park and Jaws. Mm-hmm. I mean, have you seen Jaws for It's not. It's bad. It's bad. just bad. The, airport, the airport series the airport of films series. just get progressively yes. worse to the point that there's a barrel rolling Concorde right. in the last one. And, and you have to, it's like you have to watch them. I mean, you just have to. I own all of them, <laughs> but if they're on TV, I will still stop and watch them, ads and all. <laughs> Is there a favorite dish, like food, that whenever you hear it, no matter when it is, uh, you want to have it? Mm. On me. Okay. It's a Vietnam theme today. Vietnam. That's all there's to <laughs> <It's> it. <okay. laughs> <laughs> What's the favorite, your favorite concert that you've ever been to? Oh, you're going to like this one a lot. In Sync. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it wasn't the best concert I've ever been to. Let's not get confused. Um, when I, I took my three daughters. And so uh, my oldest daughter and I are only 18 years apart in age. So there was okay. a lot of things that we would go and do because we loved doing them together. And so we went to a number of concerts. But Sync was one that I took all three of my daughters to. And it made me the best mom in the world. I mean, at least for a week or two. Um, I had a migraine for five days afterwards. It, it wasn't a good concert, but... <laughs> But it's a good memory. It's a good memory. Clearly. And yeah. and and those were tickets were hard to come by. Oh, they were really hard to come by. And it's one of those, I, I have a strange shopping skill that nobody fully understands. But when we bought the tickets, I actually was in Montana and somehow managed to wrangle Ticketmaster before anybody in the Seattle area did and, and got tickets to the concert, which is what made me such a good mom for Wow. A week. Reminds mm-hmm. me when in, back in 1991 when U2 was, was touring in L.A., my sister spent three hours on the phone because I live far away mm-hmm. from L.A. trying to get on the phone with Ticketmaster to get me tickets and did it for three hours. And somehow for a concert that everybody said was going to sell on 10 minutes got me two tickets for the very last show. And I was so happy that I took her with me. So nice of you. Yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah. Right? That, that's awesome. Yeah. And you could not because that would have right. been fair. What is the greatest airplane of all time? Of the DC-3. That just hands down. Why? Because it's the greatest airplane ever. Um, <laughs> That's a circular argument. No, what? Uh, so it's okay, because it just is. The DC-3 uh, first came into production in 1933, and it is a plane that until two years ago, smoke jumpers in Montana still used to jump out of. Right. Um, what, uh, during the 75th anniversary of D-Day, there were 36 of them that flew. These airplanes were all built in the 
the 30s and the 40s, that flew to Normandy for this event. From around the world. Yeah, they're still used on a regular basis, but it was a plane that literally, it was the first plane that ever allowed airlines to make a profit off of flying passengers. Mm. And for a very long time, 95% of air travel was done on a DC-3. Yeah, and I know that uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower said at the end of the Second World War that the DC-3 was among the three most important uh, elements that helped the United States win the war. I think it was the DC-3. The Jeep, mm-hmm. the, the Willie, and it was external removable fuel tanks yep. for airplanes, yes. right? Yeah. Amazing. All right. Uh, last bigger question. Um, leader that you admire the most or influences you the most, do you have any? I, I have a number. Eisenhower is a huge one. Mm. Um, there's the, the story of Eisenhower writing the letter before D-Day mm-hmm. where he, he wrote the letter that he would read if it failed. Yeah. And put it in his pocket. Yeah. Um, and as the story goes, he when they did succeed, he forgot it was there. His ability to say, this was my responsibility. Mm-hmm. This this is all on me. It is not on our brave men who have been fighting. Um, was just so classic of what you learn about Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. He was a phenomenal leader. He, mm-hmm. And yeah. And not just a wartime leader, of course, nope. as president, it was it was on his watch that, you know, desegregation of schools began yep. and, and all of those things. Um, OK, so Eisenhower stands out. Anybody yep. else? Any any uh, women pilots, for example, who Jackie Cochran, ah. if you don't know who Jackie Cochran is, J.D. will provide a link on his website mm-hmm. for you to learn about Jackie Cochran. Amazing woman who grew up very, very poor and learned to fly. She had a third grade education. She learned how to fly. And during the 50s and 60s, she held more altitude and speed records than any man or woman mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. She was a phenomenal pilot and nobody was messing with her. And some very famous people, uh, Jimmy Doolittle, Chuck mm-hmm. Yeager, mentioned oh, yeah. that she was among the best pilots they'd ever seen. Absolutely. She is credited for getting Eisenhower to run for president. Mm. He wrote his memoir at her ranch. <laughs> There you go. Comes mm-hmm. back to Ike. Right. Again. Absolutely. All right. Well, Julia, thank you so much thank uh, you. For, for being here today and for supporting the show the way you do. Just a couple of quick uh, wrap ups, everybody. Uh, Julia mentioned wordsbyjdk.com later this week. I will have links like that as well as a link to this episode and a number of the things that we talked about today. Uh, and you can continue to follow the show from there. Uh, you can contact me there with any questions uh, from for my previous guests or about upcoming guests. If you missed any part of this episode, you can download it as a podcast from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get them. Uh, next week's guest is a good friend of mine, Dr. Kevin Simpson, author of a book called Soccer Under the Swastika, and he's a psychology professor at John Brown University in Arkansas. And we're going to talk about our convergence as friends and colleagues once upon a time. Um, around things like the Holocaust, as well as issues like global HIV AIDS, our love of really famous uh, Irish quartets, uh, soccer, and more. Quick thank yous on the way out. This show is all about you. It's produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is the in-studio producer, editor, mix master. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. And my special thanks this week to everybody goes out Julia Cannell, Yolanda Frazier, and Isabel Gallegos at Ask, Jenny Ruse, Amber Reedy, Busy Riley, Phil McCoy, Tawny Santabria, Dave Santabria for recommending celery juice for kidney stones. It's a game changer. Stacy Heller, Eric Crema, Katie Beck, and the final episodes of Ozark. And finally, as a way to send you off into your week, I'll end with this original haiku. We don't learn to fly. We know how. We just forget we have wings to use. Until next week, chins up, everyone. <laughs>